Uh, it's said in the 1992 American election that Bill Clinton had put up on the um, uh, uh, wall of his campaign headquarters in Little Rock, the economy stupid. His point was that in the end, what wins and loses an election is what people think about how you will handle the economy. And there's no doubt something's wrong with our economy, isn't there? The banking collapse, the bankers' bonuses. Read the book uh, Beer and Loathing in the Square Mile if you want to see um, something of what was going on before the collapse. There's unease about big business, multinational companies and on the list goes. So, although I put on the list of um, subjects that I offered to the elders um, the topic of the Bible and economics with more than some little trepidation and my fear levels rose considerably when they came back to me and said, no, that was one of the preferred topics that they wanted me to try to cover in this series on the Bible and politics, though I have in one sense an impossibly large task. Frankly, as Christians, we cannot ignore issues of the economy if we're trying to think about how we can live and should live in this world. So, we've got to... um, uh, the topic, the Bible and economics today. Remember where we've come from. In the first sermon, I called you to be concerned about the world. The Bible calls us to be concerned about the world. The second sermon, I, 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 called, I, I called us to a vision for action in the world that actually respects the diversity of people um, uh, in their diversity of beliefs. We're not just seeking in a, in a, in a narrow way to impose... Christianity or, or even every Christian um, um, bit of Christian morality on the world at large. It's more complex than that. We work, as David uh, Barclay said, for the common good, the good of everybody. Um, if you didn't hear that, that was two weeks ago. Um, and then last week I, I um, was calling you to be uh, committed to the Bible's vision for caring for the environment. And as I prepared for today, frankly, on this subject of economics, we could just go in so many directions and think about so many things. But we must think about this issue. Um, I'm reminded of the story that uh, Stuart Briscoe, an American preacher, tells of how he went to a new church and... uh, uh, when he started uh, working at the church, one of the deacons, I think it was, came to him and said, I hope you won't be like the last pastor. He was always talking about money. And uh, Stuart Briscoe said, well, actually, I think I will be like the last pastor because the Bible is always talking about money. Where are we going to go? Well, I want this morning to go in two directions, two, two opposite directions in, in, uh, in one sense and uh, different parts of what I say this morning there may, therefore may relate to different people to a different extent. 
The first thing I want to do, and, and in some sense the biggest thing that I want to do, is I want to expose an idol, another god that is worshipped in this country by large sections of society. And to be honest, it's likely that that god will, in a large, to a large extent, rule how people vote. But that God should not rule how Christians vote. Jesus gave that God a name. Mammon. So I want to expose the worship of mammon in our society the first half of what I say and then actually the second half of what I, want, what I want to say I want to come right to the other end of the spectrum and I want to say what should our attitude be personally as Christians to money so it is a sermon in uh, two halves and um, uh, in the, if in the first half you fall asleep um, I will wake you up when it gets to the more personal application things I promise when I'm talking about mammon, I do not want, though, people to hear me as if I am just criticising Western capitalism. That would be rather like that, uh, that scene in um, uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian that gets so often quoted, you know, with John Cleese as Reg from the um, Liberation Front of Judea or whatever it is, saying, what have the Romans ever done for us? and then everybody lists a long thing long list of what the Romans have done and he says alright, alright but apart from better sanitation medicine, education, irrigation, public health roads and fresh water systems, baths public water, what have the Romans ever done for us? You know? and, and, and in a sense it's simply in, criti- in criticising the economic systems that we have today there is a danger of just being heard as, it, as a carper now, I want to say, actually, Western capitalism has done an enormous amount of good. Just actually as the ancient Rome did an enormous amount of good. But you see, when the Christians came up against ancient Rome, they appreciated the good things that it had done, but they resisted something very important about the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire required people to worship. Emperors deified themselves and demanded that people worship them as gods. And the Christians, much as they appreciated much about the Roman Empire, stood absolutely firm and said, no, we will not do that. And in a certain sense, I want want you... To, to, to have that sort of twofold attitude towards the society that we live in now. Yes, there has been much that has been good. We benefited enormously from much of the, the, the capitalist and economic thinking of the last 200 years. But actually, mammon always requires that you worship it. And Christians must say, no.
Another couple of things to, uh, um, or one, one important thing to say as well. Uh, I have to confess, I'm not an economist. I am not going to uh, speak in detail about um, uh, the details of economics. Um, and uh, those who are better educated in economics than me um, may, uh, may think that I am being naive. I've been emboldened by two things, frankly. One is that I've noticed that even the economists don't agree with each other. As uh, George Bernard Shaw famously said, if if you put all the economists together end to end, they still wouldn't reach a conclusion. (laughs) So maybe people, uh, uh, others have a little bit of right to say something. The other thing is that I... I'm not a trained economist, but I have spent years meditating on Scripture. I think the Bible does have some very, very important things to say to us. So, with those apologies and uh, qualifications and hesitations, let, let me um, uh, rush in where angels fear to tread. And let me, um, uh, first of all, in order to try to, to, to help you to see that that the god Mammon is not quite as powerful as as he is um, portrayed. Try to to expose some myths that actually are foundational for modern capitalism. The first myth is, is, is the myth of inevitable progress. I've been very helped by um, Bob Goodsvard's book, Capitalism in Progress, um, which I make reference to in the, in the notes there. He says um, that, he, that it is possible to see the decisive role of, and this is the important bit, faith in human progress in the unfolding of a uh, story of, of capitalist society. Let me explain what he's trying to say. Um, First of all, by saying, actually, Christianity invented the idea of progress. Most, uh, I, I don't know whether you're aware of that, but in the classical era, before um, Christianity came along, the world was seen as essentially static or, or, or cyclic in the way that it worked. And Christians said, no, 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 history's not like that. Christian, uh, Christians said history is linear. There was a time before Christ came and then Christ came in history and he changed the world forever and there's a time after Christ came and there's finally an end to time when Christ returns. So we should see ourselves as moving along a line of, uh, towards the final return of Christ. And uh, many positive things, says the Bible, will happen as history moves towards that final destination. Jesus, for instance, in Acts chapter 1 said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The gospel will go to the whole world progressively. But actually what happened um, a couple of hundred years ago is that is that post-Christian thinkers started to idolise progress. Christianity had always had, uh, always moderated its understanding of pro- progress with, with a sober assessment of, of mankind. So that, for instance, alongside this 
this picture of the world developing and the gospel spreading were warnings like 2 Timothy chapter 3. Mark this, says Paul, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, and, and on the list goes. Okay. In other words, as well as things developing in a positive way, there will be real, real bad developments as well of human sin. We need to factor that in. What, the, what Enlightenment thinkers did was they just thought that things were inevitably progressing towards a better and better world. And the big theories of economics were built on that. The, the two great uh, theories were, were free market capitalism, founded, uh, uh, or, or the great foundational thinker was a man called Adam Smith, and of course communism or socialism with Karl Marx. Now, I'm not going to talk much about communism because I don't think anybody believes it any longer. It has been fundamentally discredited and even reasonably pure socialism has been discredited. It was built on, a, on an unrealistic idea of progress. Marx thought that, that, that the world was just moving towards an equality of all people and that what revolutions did was simply, as he put it, to ease the birth pangs of those developments. He believed in inevitable progress as well. But the other one is the one that's still standing, that is free market capitalism under Adam Smith. And Adam Smith basically said, all you need to do is free up people to pursue their own narrow self-interest and they will inevitably make the world better and better and better. Both of those views now are substantially discredited. Um, communism, of course, finally fell apart in 1989. And uh, many commentators actually suggest that the, the particular phase of, of uh, um, uh, economics that we've gone through since 1989 was partly because there was no other story on the block apart from free market capitalism. So governments, including our government, just, just um, took their hands off any controls. Perhaps Adam Smith's view of the way economies work had won. And we've now seen the disaster that happened as a result. Progress is not inevitable, says the Bible. Human sin can undermine it and cause disasters. God actually judges nations and raises them up and brings them down on the basis of their morality, of their moral standards. It will not do simply to take your hands off completely economic markets and think that some ineluctable force of inevitable progress will take us to 
nirvana. It will not happen. Rather, sin and greed will undermine and destroy society. That's what the Bible warns and that's what we've seen. A second myth. The myth of endless growth. All capitalist economies are built around an ideal of constant economic expansion. That is, that is what they that is what they are based upon. And uh, in Adam Smith's day, and even the Victorian era, that was easy to sustain because there were vast parts of the world uh, undiscovered and, and expansion uh, could, uh, could, could go on without too much trouble. But now we are living in a different era. We are living when we can see the end of some of the non-renewable resources we have. Environmental destruction is becoming more and more of an issue and is not likely to stop because the, the, all the economies of the world base their functioning fundamentally around expansion. Now some people say they can expand without using more and more natural materials and it may be that there are some things that can be done to limit that. But a growing number of economists suggest that actually that just puts off the evil day. Bible, as Sir Peter Lever was pointing out to us, calls us to contentment. It warns us against the human desire of an endless lust for more. Capitalism is fundamentally not able to work itself out as a system that doesn't grow, we have a problem. Or another myth, an Adam Smith myth, the myth of what Adam Smith calls the invisible hand. In his uh, um, uh, book, The Wealth of Nations, he uh, referred to this often. Let me read to you one paragraph. The rich, he said, are led by an invisible hand to make nearly the same distribution of the necessaries of life which would have been made had the earth been divided into equal portions among all its inhabitants. Thus, without intending, without knowing it, they advance the interests of society. The invisible hand, he says, stops the rich becoming fabulously rich or the poor becoming terribly poor. How naive that looks today. Margaret Thatcher um, particularly um, revived that view using the concept of trickle down. Just let the rich get as wealthy as they like and the money will trickle down. And the evidence was that fundamentally it didn't just as it didn't trickle down in Isaiah's day when he said, woe to you who add house to house until there is no room left in the land, or Amos's day when he criticised the wealthy for their fabulous uh, uh, wealth and so on. Ephesians 4 verse 19 talks about people having a continuous lust 
for more. Or Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Uh, the um, the um, millionaire Rockefeller, uh, J.D. Rockefeller, wasn't it, I think, um, was, was, was once asked, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. In fact, it seems much more likely that the invisible hand, if you want to uh, call it that, that, that over the years has stopped the wealthy becoming fabulously rich and the poor becoming poor has been the Christian consciences of innumerable people who have made sure that the poor are cared for and given a whole ethos of redistribution of income and as the Christian conscience of our nation gets weaker. So it's not greatly surprising that, for instance, a report just recently said that we have the worst ratio, inequality ratio between rich and poor that we've had for 40 years. Worse than in the Thatcherite years. And another myth then, which I'll try to explain to you. I've called it the myth of the fruitfulness of money. And, and um, uh, this, this relates to um, what Vince Cable has called casino banking. The financial wizardry that went on in the, uh, in the city which yielded the most uh, enormous profits for a while for people um, but then uh, uh, resulted in collapse. The fundamental um, thing that we need to understand about money is money doesn't grow itself. It only grows insofar as it is used to create new products and new things. And the very nature of casino banking was that they ignored that and um, unlinked money from actually manufacturing and production of things and thought that by their clever tricks they could create the most fabulous wealth and for themselves, for a little time, they did. But it was all smoke and mirrors. And it collapsed. Um, uh, Donald Hay, who's a, an academic economist in uh, Oxford, who was explaining some of this to me, said that as far as he could see, the real yield on money in terms of things produced has never in the last couple of hundred years exceeded 3%. If someone is telling you that money can grow faster than that, it would be a miracle that has never happened. 
So at the, ve- at, at, at the very least, we should not, we should not um, be enthralled to money as if it was some magical thing. There's every reason to control this casino banking, or at least at least to unlink it from uh, uh, from the economy in such a way that it doesn't bring us all down if people uh, go, go mad on it. There is there is every reason uh, to believe that. But actually, the Bible is even more radical than that. The Bible actually forbade the charging of interest at all to fellow Israelites. Exodus 22, verse 25, for instance, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender. Charge him no interest. And uh, it is true, actually, there is one verse, Deuteronomy 23, verse 20, which does allow interest to be charged to foreigners doesn't explain why. Perhaps it's because the foreigners could, could run away and, and were more likely to default on, their, uh, um, uh, on the repayment when a person within Israel could not default. Perhaps it's because the rest of the world in those days did charge interest. The, the world around Israel worked on an interest base, basis for, for, for lending money. And uh, therefore it was accepting that in that environment, in that wider environment, perhaps interest was, was possible. Uh, frankly, we, we, we just don't know. The ideal, though, clearly, for the nation of Israel was no interest. And uh, in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, do you remember the story where, where the master doles out money to his different um, uh, uh, servants? Uh, the uh, servant who is criticised um, uh, is criticised partly for imagining the master to be someone who reaps where he does not sow. And the master says, well, interest, as an, inter- as an incidental remark actually, interest is reaping where we do not sow. Actually, the Bible seems to be reasonably consistent about that. The problem with interest is it demands a return from the money independently of what that money actually achieves. There's nothing wrong with with profit sharing. There's nothing wrong with investing in an industry and helping that industry to uh, produce a little bit more and the person who lent the money getting back a proportionate uh, benefit from that. But once you de-link the return we get on the money from the work that that money does, we behave as if the money independently was fruitful. That's how the the, uh, theologians used to speak about it. And the church consistently said they should not, people should not charge at interest right up until the 16th century. Sadly, one of my heroes was the man who uh, changed that, John Calvin. But even he dealt with it, as one of the later Puritans said, dealt with interest as an apothecary deals with poison. 
He accepted perhaps, like in Deuteronomy 23, there are situations where interest may be permissible. But it's dangerous, it's poison. And there's a a growing band of Christian economists who uh, suggest that interest itself which was therefore decoupled from real investment in real things, has been a major source of our economic problems with boom and bust over the last 200 years. One thing is for, is for certain. The Bible warns against usury demanding a return on money that is not related to the work that money does. Underneath those myths about capitalism that in many ways um, though capitalism has done many good things have uh, uh, have been undermining influences. There is a series of myths about mammon, about money, that drives people and has always driven people to to just put more confidence in money than is appropriate. The myth, my worth, lies in my wealth. Jesus said, be on your guard, Luke 12 verse 15, against all kinds of greed, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It is extraordinary how many people decide on what they will vote simply according to what will leave them better off. That, that is their only criterion. Because their only real sense of worth, in many cases, comes from how much money is in the bank. You know, what, 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 just ask yourself, what will make you most proud about your life when you are on your deathbed? I guarantee it will not be your money. It's an illusion. People facing death know it is an illusion. Naked we come and naked we will depart. Or my happiness lies in my wealth. And again, the Bible is balanced about this. For instance, in Proverbs verse, uh, chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, the, the writer says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may, be, may become poor and steal and so dishonour the name of my God. In other words, poverty is a real evil, is a real cause of unhappiness. We haven't got enough 
to live. We haven't got food and coverings as the Bible describes it, clothes and a roof over our heads. It's a real evil, it can make us unhappy, but so can wealth. Wealth can feed pride and misery of all kinds. My happiness does not lie in my wealth. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Remember Tim um, uh, telling me about a, uh, um, uh, a friend from school who went to Africa and met all the kids. They weren't in the poorest part of Africa so they were adequately fed and so on. It was, it was okay. And uh, she came back and she said, it's astonishing, all those children were so happy and I come back to Cheney School and we're so miserable. My freedom lies in my wealth. Another um, myth of mammon. Of course, certain freedoms do. The freedom to go and have a luxurious uh, holiday and uh, all of those sorts of things. But Jesus spoke very clearly about the deceitfulness of wealth. And uh, Paul said in 1 Timothy 6 verse 9, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. He said, a trap which closes on you and holds you and robs you of liberty and freedom. So Christian, if you are a Christian here, do not be entrapped by the God Mammon. Do not be unduly impressed about those clever economists who say that uh, just leave them to it and they can wave their magic wand and they can make you wealthy and woe betide you if you ask any questions, particularly about how the poor are cared for. Don't be impressed by them. Ask those questions. Think carefully. There are foundations of our modern system which are fundamentally flawed that the Christian gospel says something about. And do not be personally allured by mammon. It will demand you worship it. It will call your heart It will make you all sorts of promises that are deceptions. I want you to be free of that. And if you're not a Christian here yet, and don't think I worship nothing. There's something in our hearts that draws us towards worship and in many, many people It is mammon. I remember sitting down with a friend of mine, school friend of mine, we were both 18, talking about what we were going to do with our lives. I wasn't yet a Christian. And he said to me, he said, at the end of the day, he said, what everyone really wants, isn't it? To sit down in their home and think I've got a bit more than the man next door. I knew it was wrong then. I can see why it's wrong now. 
it deceives you. So now anyone who's, who's fallen asleep, time to wake up because I want to talk a little bit more personally then about us and our money just for a couple of minutes at reasonably high speed from Luke chapter 16 verses 9 to 15 and um, again I'm indebted to Bob Goodsvard for this there's a link in the notes to um, uh, uh, where you'll get his own just little meditation of a few hundred words but let me just say a few things that Jesus points out really clearly Luke 16 verse 9 my money will never be pure Jesus said, I tell you, use worldly wealth or literally unrighteous mammon. Use it. It will always be unrighteous to a certain extent. It will always be mammon in a a certain sense. Calling people to worship it. But you don't have to worship it, you can use it. Your money will never be totally pure doesn't mean to say that you can't actually try to live a slightly better life with your money. Where are your investments going? Are you investing in warfare or whatever? But don't think you can ever be totally pure. Money's never pure. You can use it though. Money will fail, verse 9. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. It'll go, your money. If you're not a Christian, that's so important. Your wealth is just a little fleeting thing. Whether or not you come to know the living God is an eternal thing. Which will you pursue with all your heart? My money, says Jesus, is not my real wealth. Verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Very little, that's your money. Okay? Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you've been... um, uh, and and so on, I won't read read the rest of it. It's not the be-all and end-all of your life, your money. It is very little. Um, Who will trust you with real wealth? Says Jesus. Um, In uh, one of the verses. Verse 11. End of verse 11. The New Testament is absolutely clear what real wealth, what true riches is. Listen to these verses. Romans 2.4 The riches of God's kindness, tolerance and patience. Romans 9.23 The riches of God's glory. Ephesians 1.7 The riches of God's grace. Ephesians 1.18 The riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Uh, Ephesians 3.8 The unsearchable riches of Christ. Philippians 4.19 The glorious riches of Christ Jesus. Colossians 2.2 The full riches of complete understanding. God offers you riches here. Money's just a little thing. True wealth is something else. It is knowing the living God. 
Money to be used, verse 9, for relationships. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. That's why I'm unabashed at saying invest in evangelism. Invest in gospel priorities in this world because the money that you invest there will, will help to see people converted and in, it, in eternity you will have people coming up to you and they will say, thank you, you invested in that missionary, you invested in that church, you invested in that evangelistic initiative, thank you. Use money for gospel priorities. But, but, but don't hesitate as well to use your money for other, wider, humanitarian things. To gain friends for Jesus Christ. It is, I've said it before, let me just say it again. It will be the whole gamut of our concern for people that displays the glory of Jesus and brings people into the kingdom. And the way you spend your money will be vital in that. My money is actually about my relationships. Listen to what Paul says about working. Ephesians 4.28 We must work doing something useful with our own hands that we may have something to enjoy our retirement with, to invest in a better home, share with those in need, he says. You don't own your money, not a penny of it. It is given to you for the common good. By all means use it for your needs. but you don't own it exclusively. It is for those in need. Money so easily becomes my master. I'm going to jump over that because I've already said it. But the love of money, the love of money is rooted in pride, in vain glory, in a desire to present myself as better than others. Pharisees who loved money heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus and he said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of man, but God knows your heart. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Those who love money love to put themselves above other people. Those who love Christ love to use their money to serve other people. I just don't know what you should vote in the election. Apply some of the principles I've told you and make a decision but I do know what you should do with your life. You should do everything you can in your life 
to be rich. But not in money. In your relationship with God. In good deeds.